0: You're only supposed to blow the bloody doors off! Say hello to my little friend! To infinity and beyond! Like tears in rain. On Wednesdays we were pink. I love the smell of make pop in the morning. Here's looking at you, kid. You talking to me? You're going to need a bigger boat. You'll always have Paris. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Films and Friends. My name's Josh. I am joined as ever by Tobias. Welcome to the episode that uh, <laughs> really does not want to exist. <laughs> Take- yeah, for full, for full disclosure for, for people listening, um, this is the second time we've recorded this because we got about 10 minutes into the last one and my laptop decided to update itself. But much like the previous episode, we are joined... Well, the previous episode that no longer exists, we are joined <laughs> by George.
1: Hello. Again. So,
0: so George, the first thing, the second thing we'd like to do now is to get people to introduce themselves again and tell them, yes. and get them to tell us how they know either myself or Tobias.
2: Perfect. Um, yeah. So I'm um, I'm George. Um, I'm a, well. I was a student at Manchester University, of Manchester. Uh, I finished my degree now, um, and I know Tobias and Josh from the Mancunian, the student paper in Manchester. Um, I was a deputy deputy opinion editor there last year. And we sort of like shared an office and we went to socials together and stuff. So I know it through the paper. Um, and at the moment, I am I'm a sort of a freelance journalist, aspiring freelance journalist. So, yeah, trying to get myself out there. But, yeah, that's me.
1: Well, it's great to have you on. And without, without you know, waffling on, let's get back to where we were. So yes. we like to ask people what they've been watching recently. So, George yeah. and Josh, what have you guys been watching recently?
0: So uh, the film I'm going to recommend this week is I'm going to recommend Jarhead by Sam Mendes. Um, I thought that uh, as someone who is a big fan of sort of anti-war films, in sort of inverted commas, sort of less traditional sort of um, explosions and gunfight narratives, and sort of like looking at more like the psychological impact of war, um, I thought that, yes, Sam Mendes' uh, Jarhead is an excellent film. Um, I mean, Jake Gyllenhaal was fantastic in it. And yeah, it's just a definitely a film that I would say stands up there with many other like sort of anti anti kind of war films like kind of platoon that kind of stuff and well worth a watch for anyone sort of interested in that genre uh, what have you been yeah. watching George
2: um I've watched um one of the films I really enjoyed that I watched recently um my mum got me on DVD for my birthday because she knows how much, how much I enjoyed the series but i have been watching the twin Peaks film Twin Peaks Firewalk with me. Um, which is a David Lynch film and came out in, like, 1994, I think. And it sort of explained the origins of the TV show and it's sort of... The the TV show's about this... Well, this isn't a spoiler because it's right at the beginning, but the TV show's about a a girl who dies called Laura Palmer in a sleepy town in America called Twin Peaks and, like, the investigation that uh, ensues. And the film sort of fleshes out what happened to Laura before she died in sort of, like, a really interesting way. And like i was saying before um like it's quite a surreal show and a quite surreal film so this whole idea of like another dimension and like um a place called like the 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 black lodge where these strange spirits live and inhabit different people in the town and that's how laura died and yeah it's a it's really like bizarre like i found david lynch i've only really just recently discovered him but like he's quite fascinating to me his films
1: yeah i uh as i said in previous take my my um bit of a controversial opinion is that i don't really like david lynch i'm of the people who finds stuff to just be just too strange to get into and yeah. i do understand some things require suspension of disbelief i mean that's why superhero films work right that's why star wars works but i don't know there's just something about david lynch's stuff which is just it's too weird to me it's almost like a fever dream
2: they massively uh
1: Yeah, it's just that kind of fever dream vibe that doesn't quite mesh with me. But you were explaining to me how that kind of works.
2: I think, yeah, I don't know. I feel like at first I was genuinely, yeah, like quite sceptical of the form. I think narratively it can be quite difficult. Um, There's lots of, in the show at least, there's lots of different plot lines. And in the film, again, these, like what seems like quite a linear plot intersects with a different plot. And then there are also these strange, like, Fever Dream episodes where these uh, people from this different dimension, and there's this guy called uh, Dale Cooper who can see these people from this different dimension, and he, they're giving him clues about the case, and there's all these strange characters. In the film especially, there's lots of strange, like, interdimensional characters that help are helping with, like, the plot and stuff, and there's this whole idea about, like, yeah, spirits and dark spirits and... And um, yeah, you have to sort of buy into it and sort of trust him and try and meet him at the end. But I do admit that sometimes it can feel a bit like you're out of the picture. You don't really know what's going on.
0: Yes, yeah, so I watched. Um, so I must have watched the first two seasons of Twin Peaks when I was about fourteen, and I I was I kind of got, got quite into it. I think I sort of did quite buy into it, and I found the to um, so the second season, the second half of the second season is a bit weird. It does get particularly weird, and I wasn't quite as sold on that as i was sort of the first yeah. season but then having said that since i've watched quite a lot of like, david lynch films like kind of blue velvet and Wild wilder heart which i quite like i think to be honest like to get to really get like i think the really the, in the film that sort of gets you thinking in kind of a david lynch kind of way is probably blue velvet and i think i'd quite recommend that one for anyone trying to because that sort of, just kind of skirts around the edge of sort of really bizarreness yeah. into something that it, it does actually have like a a, very, a plot which starts somewhere and finishes yeah. in a different place. So I think that's definitely probably the best way to sort of get an introduction. I mean, to be honest, I've started watching, um during lockdown, I started watching uh, season three of Twin Peaks, which is sort of the one they made 20 years after the original series aired. And, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm still working my way through it, and I'm not as... I'm, I, as much as I do want to like it, I'm not hugely engaged with it. I mean, I'm, gonna, I'm trying to sort of keep it going, and I do want to sort of see... So I think it's the same with the. To be honest, like with with a lot of David Lynch's stuff, as you said, it is sort of like you have to sort of meet him at the end, and it sort of all makes a lot of sense. Whereas there are some bits where you just watch it and you think, like, this is sort of beyond bizarre. It doesn't make any sense, and you sort of kind of sort of beguiling to the point where you want to turn it off. But I think I am I'm I'm hopeful that it will come back together, and I'll be like, actually, yes, the season three of Twin Peaks is actually definitely worth a watch. But I will I will keep you updated on that when I find out.
2: I will say, though, that I wouldn't watch the Twin Peaks Fire Walk with me if you haven't watched the original two series first, because it sort of uh, gives away the sort of um, like the main, the the killer, essentially. Um, But I like the way the film, the film got a lot of criticism, because it's not quite as there are big surreal moments in it, but it's not quite as explicitly surreal and fever dreamish. It focuses on Laura Palmer and her journey, and like her relationship with her father and how she ended up where she is, that sort of tries to create like an origin story and i think it is quite successfully it sort of tries to ground maybe stuff in the series in, in a bit more of reality um you see how she ended up where she did and what happened to her and why it, like you have a bit more of an understanding um so i would actually i mean you know like i said on the uh, previous recording um it got like booed at uh, um Cannes film festival and people said it was like derivative and nonsensical and nothing to do with the show but yeah, I think I actually improved the show for me. I might go back and watch the show and obviously watch the third series. So, yeah, I would definitely recommend.
0: Uh, what have you been watching, Toby?
1: So, I was visiting my family at the weekend and I saw the news that Ennio Morricone had passed away. And I was truly sad about that because I think that he is the best soundtrack composer of all time, above any other... Um, Composer, just undeniably. And I woke up um, on Monday, saw the news, and um, was chatting to my mother. And she told her the news. She was like, oh, that's 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 quite saddening. I, I can't believe it. And she walks up to me with the DVD of Cinema Paradiso and says, have you seen this? It's fantastic. It's, it's, the soundtrack by memory gone, it's brilliant. I was like, you know what? I haven't actually seen Cinema Paradiso yet. So we watched... We watched it, and I really enjoyed it. Just a lovely film about how cinema and not just film in general, but cinemas as a location and and institutions are so central to so many people's lives and it was yeah, just a really, really enjoyable watch i I loved it
2: yeah, I saw that news as well and um. I didn't really know who he was, and then I looked at sort of... He did the music for like The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly in, like, Serge, Le- Serge Leon* films. Yep. And, um, yeah, like, I feel like we really need to sort of, like, watch those classics. Um, it seems like he was sort of truly sort of, you know, legendary, like, you're like, saying, like, cin- cinematically. Um,
1: oh, absolutely.
2: Cinema, pa- cinema Paradiso, I think my mum mentioned that film to me as well about, like, the origins of cinema and stuff. I but I did never need to get get around to watching films like that, because I, like... I've watched a lot of modern films, but I rarely go back to the classics.
1: It's it's definitely worth a watch. It's definitely worth a watch because uh, it's it's just wholesome the whole way through. There there isn't there's a couple of you know hard moments, but not not anything that would make you upset. Like it's genuinely like a really wholesome film overall. And as for Morricone himself, I mean his work is incredible. He's done the Dollars trilogy. He did Once Upon a Time in America, Cinema Paradiso, Hateful Eight, which he finally won an Oscar for, The Untouchables, right, yeah. The Thing, just so many more. I mean, Pro- if you go through his Prodific, work... yeah. Yeah, incredibly prolific. And if there's one song that you had to pick out that he wrote, I'd say go listen to uh, Ecstasy of Gold, or Ecstasy in... Yeah, Ecstasy of Gold, Ecstasy in Gold which is mm-hmm. from the climactic scene in The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. And it's just a whole film within itself in just the song. Yeah. Truly, truly I love that. moving work.
2: I think, yeah, like, I notice it more and more often now when you watch a film, and sort of like you, 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 I don't know, you put a certain pieces of music together with, with films. And the team would not actually be as good without that music. It's sort of like the choice of music and the way music can tell stories and enhance stories and tell, tell you something about a character or the way the plot's going. I think is something that yeah, growing more and more to appreciate.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's no secret. Just, it's just... Sorry, go on, go on.
2: No, yeah, no. So I was just thinking about like the importance of music and stuff. Like, I genuinely associate some songs. So, sort of, like, not not only like pieces of film, the pieces of music that have been specifically composed for certain films but like just some songs I associate with a certain emotion with a certain film and you realise how like how important that is and yeah
1: The film that has really clever use of music within it is The Italian Job and it's no secret that The Italian Job is one of my favourite films of all time I go on about it all the time (laughs) but on one of my most recent watches of it it must have been two years ago now I noticed that the soundtrack which is composed by quincy jones has specific instruments with specific melodic motifs that are related to certain characters so when that character is on the right. scene uh, on screen sorry they their instrument plays and the instruments play with each other in the soundtrack according to what characters are on the screen which is such a clever little touch.
2: Yeah, that's fantastic, isn't it? That's when you know there's like real like love and sort of care and that's like proper filmmaking. That's yeah. I like the way that you can make music and you can like like you say, like tell a story, tell a whole film with a bit of music and tell someone's character, someone's traits, how they're feeling. That's yeah. I've only i watched magic. bits of the Italian Job. Like I've watched it like on a Sunday afternoon at my grandparents. Like I don't remember it that well. I definitely. I remember the end when they're on like they're they're falling off the um the cliff or something, and there's the money, and they having to like slowly edge edge away. Yeah, yeah the
1: climactic know. literal yeah. cliffhanger.
2: Yeah, it's yeah brilliant. exactly. Yeah, it's just brilliant. Yeah.
0: So to sort of move on from um favourite film, of course, uh, onto <laughs> onto on some of George's favourite films. So what are some of your sort of favourite films, sort of uh, directors, kind of uh, genres, that kind of thing?
2: Yeah, um, I'd say, like, my favourite film of all time is probably Shaun of the Dead. Which not, not even for, like, obviously it's a it's a great film, I love it dearly, but, like, the sheer quantity of times I've watched it, when I was younger, it used to be on ITV2, basically every evening it felt like, so I'd watch it just relentlessly, and I just, yeah, the comedy, the characters, the sort of, it was my introduction to, like, it was a bit scary for me when I first watched it, so Shaun of the Dead is definitely one of my favourites. I like Edgar Wright in general as a director, um hot fuzz and like scott pilgrim um i also love like like i like danny boyle i like his films like train Support is one of my favorite films um um 28 days later is one of my favorite films i'm also a big wes anderson fan and i know you josh like are a big wes anderson <laughs> like i was reading your um column about steve suzu today as well i really enjoyed that so yeah Thank i think they're some of my favorites
0: yeah, to be honest, like from what you said there, it sounds like we have fairly similar tastes. I mean, I, I think I, yeah. don't, I don't really make any secret of the fact Danny Boyle is one of my favourite directors as well. Um, big fan yeah. of train spotting and I think Sunshine, actually. In terms of I scores... I that
2: one, yeah.
0: Oh, it's fantastic. And in terms of talking about scores as well, I think one of my favourite film scores of all times is, I can't remember what his name is, It's John something. Mm. I can't was John, the person John. who... Uh, Oh, what's his name? The person who um, oh, it's like it's like that tweet you they tweeted the other I was day about, about yeah. The, the me just going, and... <laughs> me just going on about trying to remember what someone's name is. I will to find <laughs> out. No, it's the um, yeah, and yeah, Wes Anderson, and, and yeah, but Train Spotting. What is it specifically about Train Spotting that um, you sort of? Because I think I've said before. I think Train Spotting. It's actually weirdly, I think Trainspotting is the um sort of greatest British film ever made. And I think second is Shaun the Dead. So what is it about yeah. Trainspotting that you like so much?
2: Train spotting, yeah, like I like the way it feels it's so relentlessly, um, Scottish and like you feel like it's so like mimetic and like it really creates setting well with its like characters and like the filming. you feel like you're there in Edinburgh at the time. Um also like obviously the portrayal of um um, drugs, like obviously, it's vehemently like anti-drugs, but I suppose like, at the same time it sort of tells these lived stories and the way people become susceptible to drugs, and uh, like the, f- the like the, the strange surreal moments, like the baby on the ceiling. Um, sorry, spoilers, um, and the characters and the performances. I, I love Robert Carlyle in that film. He just he is a genuine psychopath, and I, I mean, I'm totally here for it. And I, I, I obviously like as a bit of a like, I sort of like the 90s aesthetic as well. I feel like, yeah. Also, I also remember my dad telling me about how he went to see that film when it came out. And he went to see it like four or five times in like the. Like four or five times at the cinema because he just loved it so much. Like it's such an engrossing film. You sort of, like I said before, like you feel like you're there and it's a rush. Yeah, I don't know. It's It works for me on a lot of levels, I've got to say.
1: Yeah, I only watched Train Spotting two years ago. It was. I heard so much about it and all of it was really positive and it lived up to the praise I saw I mean as you said it really accurately depicts the ups and downs of drugs it it really the contrast I think the fact that the world of Edinburgh in the 90s is so bleak and gritty and, and gross at points that when you when it contrasts to those trippy scenes it really really yeah exemplifies as you were saying the ups and downs it fantastic it's just a fantastic film and definitely yeah, like, hall of fame worthy
2: oh yeah i just yeah i remember again I, I, it's like i know it's maybe it's a bit crass but like it just feel like like i said like a rush like you're there with them and there's like story after story and it anecdote and i know this guy and like the ups and downs of their life, and I like sort of uh, they're genuinely quite like f- philosophical about life as well. Um Yeah, I don't. Know, it really gets you thinking, and yeah, it's just a complete like sort of massive one, one of my favourites of all time, definitely. And I even thought the sequel was quite good. I was really sort of I was very sceptical of Transporting Two, but I enjoyed that as well. I don't think Danny Bell can do much wrong in my eyes.
0: No, I think I too, yeah. To be honest, I think I think the sequel definitely did live up to the expectations. I think it did of all the sequels that I've ever sort of gone into I think that was one of the ones I've had the highest expectations for and I think it pretty much did live up to it. I mean I I, I don't think I was as sold on it as the real, as the um, original sorry, but I mean I don't think you ever I don't think you ever physically could live up to that because it is, I think yeah, I mean I know the word seminal gets chucked around a lot but I don't think there is a film that sort of captures sort of the 90s I think it's like the essential 90s film. And I think, he has said, it is one of the greatest British films I've made. Also, the person who did the score for Sunshine, is called John Murphy. I was about half right. So another thing you have on your list that is quite an interesting, um, another choice here that I, another one of a film I really enjoy that doesn't really, doesn't really get much of a, um, doesn't really get much uh, attention is a submarine.
2: Submarine. Yeah. Um, I've actually only seen it a couple of times. Um, Again, I bought the DVD. I mean, I love Richard Ayoade, the director, like, as a person. I think he's just hilarious, deadpan, one of the funniest people on telly. Um, and when I realised he was like a big film guy and he was like, even a director, I was like, oh my God, fantastic. Um, but yeah, Submarine. Again, I think it creates that... I love films that sort of create a certain space and a certain setting really effectively. And so you can understand... That, like You go to the school, you sort of walk around with him on the beach, this sort of... um. This sort of like quiet, sleepy um, seaside town. And the ups and downs again of life there, obviously very different to spotting. But yeah, it's just beautifully charming as well. Um, Yeah, there was a lot to love about that film. Um, Paddy Contadine as well in that film was absolutely hilarious as this sort of like rip-off mystic, absolute (laughs) ass. Yeah, some good performances in there as well. But I think Richard Iwadi, yeah, he, he could really get his personality in there as well. Double, but I really want to.
0: Yeah, no, that, I, I think that's on my watch list on Letterboxd, Actually, something I really need to see. But yes, yeah, submarine. I think it's yeah. it's definitely one of those. It's it's, it's definitely a very, it's a very underrated sort of coming of age film. And I think it does yeah. it does coming of age. I think most of our idea of coming of age films come from the US. So you have quite a lot of like as much as I really enjoy stuff like Lady Bird and to an extent like even though it's probably my least favourite Wes Anderson film, I do actually really... I do still quite like Moonrise Kingdom. But I think sort of oh, really? trans. I think transposing the sort of classic elements of the coming of age story, but you sort of add that sort of level of like kind of like British sort of grimness to it, and sort of like it isn't yeah. a really it isn't a really sort of um bright place the person's growing up It's a really sort of miserable grey place, yeah. like, village in love... Wales, I think.
2: Yeah, yeah, Welsh, I think. Yeah, I just love the way. Yeah, it sort of um. Whereas is... it sort of like takes something you know, quite unremarkable everyday life, like you say, in a sort of dreary Welsh sort of like seaside town. It sort of raises the stakes and makes it cinematic and brings sort of normal, like, he, you know, him losing his virginity and sort of falling in love for the first time, but sort of not some, not not like in New York or even in Edinburgh, but in like this sleepy, grey, depressing town. And it sort of raises that, uh, those experiences, which are so important to like the level of cinema and like portrays it so well like yeah it genuinely and you know growing up in somewhere gray and you know british even if not welsh it's it sort of yeah definitely strikes a chord with me and sort of the characters that you meet and stuff i like that i really like that sort of form
0: and also the uh the um, soundtrack was excellent because the most of the songs were written by um alex turner of arctic monkeys fame it's, yes. quite a great, it's quite a nice... Um, the soundtrack is actually really good, some of the songs on it. Some of the songs on it, I actually listen to on like, a fairly regular basis, just in general playlists.
1: I swear so, I have one of the songs on one of my playlists somewhere. Like, I, I can swear <laughs> it's there.
2: It is one of those films I want to go back and watch, because I remember I watched it a few years ago. Um, I've only, I think I've only watched it twice, but yeah, it really should a chord with me. It's really my sort of film. Yeah. I, I definitely uh, re- re- recommend, and I think... Yeah, and I, you mentioned... Um, on a slightly different tangent, but Moonrise Kingdom, you just said that's like your least favourite Wes Anderson film because I was going to say that's probably my favourite.
0: Yeah, I mean, I've I just, I thought it was, I mean, I, I, I'm i very much aware that sort of, most quite a lot of criticisms of Wes Anderson films are sort of how sort of uh, twee and sort of kind of saccharine they are and I think mm. that was, I think for me that was kind of my limit was sort of right, yeah. Moonrise Kingdom was a bit too much, sort of like, a bit too like, kind of twee fam sort of friendly kind of i don't know just didn't have sort of i feel like the my favorite things about sort of wes Anderson films are sort of the kind of slightly darker edge to them and i feel yeah. like that and i think that like because a lot of them do have that kind of like um so if you think of something like um uh if you think uh, like the Darjeeling limited like the pulp of that film is quite, it's, it's kind of like a fairly slightly twee story about all the stuff that sort of them trying to track down their mother, or whatever. But sort of that mm-hmm. twist towards the end when you find out the reason why the guy is looks like he does isn't because he had a motorcycle accident, he tried to kill himself. And yeah. it's it doesn't have that kind of like it because it, I think you have same
2: it, like emotional,
0: yeah. I think, I think I think that's one of the things that his work does so well is that it does have that, it always has that his films do have an element of sort of real and sort of emotional sort of an emotional basis that is quite dark Mm -hmm. that is kind of wrapped up in this sort of like pastel kind of very sort of beautiful color palette beautifully shot artistic films Mm -hmm. and i think that was something that i felt was kind of missing from moonrise kingdom and i think that's probably why it's not one of my it's probably my least favorite
2: yeah oh man i don't know like I can't remember the children's names, unfortunately, but the girl—I know at the end there's there's the, the storm on the island, and um, they're trying to escape because she's going to get, um oh, is it he's going to get adopted? Sorry, he's. Oh, they're going to—they're um, going to take him to like an orphanage or something.
0: Yeah, he's going to have to get readopted. That, I right. think it, it is. is. Yeah.
2: I just that the bit at the end when Bruce Willis and it, he becomes like his father figure and Bruce Willis adopts him. I don't know the whole circle and. I feel like that, those were some fairly high stakes. And the end, when Bruce Willis and he goes to see her, and he sneaks out into um, the cop, Bruce Willis's car. I know that uh, the fact that he could stay there and he could still see her, I don't know. It was just so. It's just really. It really makes me sort of like well up every time I watch it. I don't know. I love the the way that he like again like raises the children are like, like properly complex um, characters. They're not just sort of there. I like the way that the plot's focused around them. And um, yeah, I don't know. I do really love Moonrise Kingdom. I've got to say.
0: Yeah, I mean that's that's fair. I think it's. Um, mm. I think it. There are definitely. I think there are definitely elements that I do actually. I do genuinely like. But I think there is mm. just. I think my sort of reading of a lot of his films. I don't think that the, the, the reasons why I, I love them so much, I don't think that one kind of fits into that reason so well. And I do think it's still a, it's still a beautifully made film. And I think it, even mm. as, it's, even to be honest, saying, saying it's my least favourite, it's like saying it's my least favourite out of all the sort of like, it's my least favourite out of all my my favourite things of all time. Like it's it's not yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I, even, even, even saying it's my least favourite, it still doesn't make it a bad film. I think it still yeah, is totally. sort of a fantastic piece of work. But I think out of all of his films, I think it's the one that, it resonated emotionally with me the least. I yeah. think that's. <laughs> I think that's why. I, I think that's why. I think it's my least favorite. Is because on a personal level, it is my least favorite. I don't necessarily think. I don't necessarily think it is actually maybe his worst film. I think arguably, *The Life Aquatic* is critically worse. Yeah, critically. Yeah. But I love because that one as well. it's yeah. It's just. I mean, it does go on a bit, though. To be fair. Yeah. But yeah.
2: Again, I think it's like you say, like film in general. Is always, um, obviously, like, some some films, there, there is objectively bad and, like, good art and stuff. Mm. Like, I think it's the emotional experiences when you watched it, how it hit you. Again, impact on my assessment of a film much more than I'd, like, you know, much more than I'd probably like to think. I think yeah. Submarine and Moonrise, are probably two examples of films I've watched only a couple of times, maybe once or twice each film, but, like, I remember really resonating with me and, like, making me feel, yeah, like, warm inside, definitely like emotional those two films Yeah, which I think is nice though you know like different strokes for different folks like people react to I think that's the beauty of it isn't
1: it yeah definitely see I'm just quiet here not (laughs) having seen many of the films you guys have spoken about (laughs) but what I have been thinking about is why don't you like Tom Hanks George that's just been in my mind
2: I don't I don't know. when I filled out the thing I don't know Tom Hanks I just I don't know maybe it's a personal thing he just sort of I don't know he makes me cringe and I think Forrest Gump's a bit overrated I think maybe I've taken that a bit personally I watched that once and thought this isn't that this isn't the sort of artistic tour de force performance of a lifetime that it is I don't like Tom Hanks now I find it different I don't think I have that many negative opinions about actors but yeah Tom Hanks sort of he sort of, for me as well, epitomises sort of like Hollywood establishment and sort of like safe films about American exceptionalism, which don't really, you know, do much for me. For me, Tom Hanks is like at the centre of that. Maybe that's why I don't like him. It's more, it's less maybe about quality of his acting, more about him as a character. Which the is a roles cynical, he takes on. But, you know. Yeah, I don't know. Like there was that... There's one I saw him with him advertised in recently. I think it was about... The warning He's like, oh, we're going to rain down hell on them. I only saw the trailer, but, like, yeah, I don't know. Those, I enjoyed Captain Phillips, but a lot of his... Yeah, maybe I'm being a bit bit judgmental, but I don't know. Tom Hanks just doesn't quite sit right with me. As, no, i don't, think, I don't agree with right you anymore. there.
1: I'll agree with you there. I mean, he is essentially the male version of Meryl Streep, who yeah. he will always deliver a good to really good performance in any role he has, but that's really it. Yeah. No risks. There are no really big risks that he's taken in his career. There really aren't any films of his that I'd say are awful. I mean, he sure, he, he's done some bad family stuff, as a lot of actors have, but nothing you'd be like, oh, this is genuinely lowest of the low. It's just, no, just yeah. consistent overall.
2: Yeah, I just don't feel like he's a particularly... Yeah, he's just very much like he will make a film, it will be pretty good, it'll be well written, he'll he'll have a good part in it, that's that. It doesn't really push the boundaries. It's not I don't see the appeal, the mass appeal. I think his best film for me will probably be Toy Story. I love Toy Story. It's like as bad as that sounds, I know he's like a great actor, but yeah, he doesn't really flop my boat.
0: Yeah, I mean to be honest, I'm I'm probably a bit biased in this conversation considering I watched Castaway for the first time last night and really enjoyed it. And yeah. I think I, th- I think there is just that element of just, he is, it is just the sort of, if you look at the sort of if you just look up his filmography and stuff, I think it is that sort of, he has been in so many films that are pretty really good. I think Sleeves in Seattle also, I think is, it gets a kicking because it is very problematic, but I, I actually really enjoyed it. <laughs> but I think, yeah, I think, I, I think in a way he has become sort of that go-to answer of, um, who's the best actor of all time or sort of the, modern era as it were and i think he a lot of people would go for him i actually disagree and i was thinking about this the other day i think denzel denzel washington is probably actually arguably the greatest i think the greatest living actor i think is actually probably probably denzel washington and then probably leonardo dicaprio and then probably tom hanks i think if i had to rank them yeah, I, I, mean, I realized I realized they're very hot takes just off the top of my head. But I was thinking yeah. about this. Like I was thinking about this a few days ago. But what about but Daniel I Day Lewis?
2: About
0: this as well. I don't know. I, Who did you say? I've, sorry,
2: Daniel Day Lewis. Oh yeah, I've, yeah. Daniel Day Lewis is a good shout as well. Denzel um, <clears> Washington. I've seen Man on Fire. I remember loving that. I really enjoyed that. Um, but I've not honestly. I really want to see the Malcolm X film. I've heard that's like fantastic. And in third year, I studied, did a lot of, um, I did a civil rights, black freedom movement module in, in my history course. And I absolutely loved that. And we did some of Malcolm X's speeches and some of his work and um, like the Nation of Islam. And I, I sort of watched a lot of Malcolm X speeches on YouTube and I really wanted to watch the film. So I'm, I think Denzel Washington is definitely a shout for me. I wouldn't put Tom Hanks up there, not for me. Leonardo DiCaprio as well is good. I think Robert De Niro back in the day, but not now.
0: Oh God, no. I watched, um, yeah. What did I watch? the other day, because this is a it's just a weird anecdote, but the other day I was, um, <laughs> before I moved out of my old house, I was like the only person there, and our internet went off for like a day, so I was, I was just sat in a house by myself with nothing on, did, did nothing sort of online, so I just watched telly all day, and the only thing I found to watch in the evening was I watched um, Robert De Niro in Bad Grandpa, <laughs> <No>. and
2: honestly, <laughs> oh dear.
0: Honestly, if you'd made that film in like two thousand and one, it would have still been dated, and that sort of post American Pie, it would still be dated. Yeah, it was pretty I've not bad. Seen it,
2: but I've heard it's pretty heinous. Yeah.
1: Yeah, no, I've not seen it yet, but I think that the De Niro film, which is kind of peak De Niro in a good way, is mm. analyze that uh, analyze this. Sorry, I spoke about it the other week, mm. and he. If you've not, have you seen it, George?
2: I've, I've, I've not seen that one, no. This is quite
1: funny, because it's um, it's Billy Crystal and, and De Niro. And basically, De Niro plays a gangster, a mobster, who has anxiety, really, really bad anxiety. So he needs to go to a therapist, and the therapist is Billy Crystal, and Billy Crystal doesn't really want to be helping a, a mobster, because that just means trouble. And their friendship and relationship unfolds from there. And... It really is De Niro just playing a parody of all the characters he's played in one go. yeah. And it works. It's a charming film and he's very funny in it. And he, it's a good film. But once you've done that, where can you go from there? Do you just go back yeah. to the stuff that you've already parodied? It's just
2: bizarre. Yeah. yeah, like I haven't watched The Irishman. And I'd like to watch Analyze This. That sounds like quite a nice one. But The Irishman, to me, I mean, I've not, again, it's something I've been meaning to watch, but I haven't got around to yet because it seems like such like a chore because it's like, what, three and a half hours long or something ridiculous like that. But it's like, what, Robert De Niro and Joe Pesci playing, just like doing Goodfellas again. I don't know. It just doesn't – it seems to me as if, like you say, what else is there to do for actors like that? They haven't really moved on. I don't know.
0: Yeah, you do kind of feel like he has kind of painted himself in a corner where he has yeah. made these amazing films. And then you just like, well, where are we going to go? Where do you go from then? Because some of the stuff he's been in, like, I've seen like Last Vegas is awful. And then sort of, yeah, Dirty Grandpa's like that. But even like, it's sort of one-upping that even worse. And yeah. the Joker, he's just basically playing the character he played oh, yeah, in jo- I have not King of Comedy. Him. Like, in the 70s which is actually really good actually i highly recommend if you actually want to watch something it's significantly better than joker just go and watch king of comedy the scorsese film yeah
2: again that's one i haven't seen that i need to see
0: oh that's fantastic like when you watch that like joker just looks like an absolute i mean to be fair like joker looks like enough of a rip-off when you've seen taxi driver But if you watch taxi driver and then watch um king of comedy it's literally a rip-off of those films just combining them in some weird sort of it's a bit like kind of putting them in a blender. I never it's thought about Taxi
2: Driver and Joker like that. But that makes... I've not seen Joker, but I can... The more I think about it, yeah. Yeah, like, I mean... Taxi Driver and like Raging Bull, Goodfellas. Like those original Scorsese films, for me, are just uh, yeah some of the best performances films. It's sad to see someone fall from grace like that, just <laughs> to be honest. <laughs>
0: But I mean, he's a bet but he's making dollar, though, so, it's, you know. Yeah, he's got secure... chasing the bag. Chasing yeah, got to the secure bag.
2: the bag somehow.
0: He's securing the bag. <laughs> exactly, around. yeah,
2: get that cheddar. That's just, again, put it like that as well, that just makes me a bit depressed. Like, I don't know, I suppose that actors just, I suppose they, they have their creative flurry earlier on in their career, and then eventually they're just, they're just basically doing cameos in other films, or they're playing hyper, hyper, like, hyper real versions of themselves, like caricatures. I don't know.
1: Well, the other actor you put on, which I also, which I do agree that isn't a really great actor, is Tom Cruise. Oh, and yeah. although, to an extent, I feel that some of his films are due to the film, not him, such as Minority Report, where the idea is great, but the execution is awful, but he just plays the same guy?
2: Again, yeah. Criminally overrated for me, and... Uh, again, I hate to say it, but like another one of these sort of like all American heroes, Hollywood establishment kind of guys that will churn out consistently, maybe okay films. Like, I watched Jerry Maguire, I thought, yeah, that's fine. Um, Top Gun, things like that. Maybe it's more like a subjective thing. These films aren't objectively bad, but they're just really not my sort of film whatsoever.
1: He is brilliant, though, and undeniably brilliant in Tropic Thunder, <laughs> where he plays the producer. Oh.
2: Yeah, yeah, he's got that like quite short role, hasn't he?
1: Yeah, well, I I'd say yeah, he of course, screen time isn't the biggest, but in the story he definitely is quite central to it all. And yeah. that, you can tell he's just having fun with that, which is really what you like to see with some actors.
2: One hundred percent, yeah. You want you want the yeah, you want it to be like a passion project. You don't want it to look sort of like Look at look at their eyes when they're playing, you know, whatever, an American general in World War Two for the fifth time and see that glazed expression. Like, you want a bit of passion. You want a bit of creativity. That's probably my only reason I have a bit of a... Probably put Tom Cruise and Tom Hanks down. Like, I don't like... Yeah, the way they churn out these films is just, to me, not what I'm after. Like, that's probably why I did put Daniel Day-Lewis is because I know, yeah, he's an obvious choice, but, like, he doesn't do very many cinema films. And the ones he does are good.
1: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Whereas Tom Cruise, I mean, Mission Impossible, right? I understand that there's something admirable about the fact that he doesn't use a stunt double, that he broke his leg filming whatever film and in the middle of a stunt. But the end result is just... I, I, I know it's the same character in the series, that's obvious, but... It's just no spice to it, it's just him playing a badass... Yeah. ...that isn't even that memorable... Again, Mission Impossible is a franchise I can't get into. It's just, yeah. it's okay.
2: It's just those sort of films, just, yeah. It's, again, it's very subjective. But I did, I remember going to see Jack Reacher again. That just feels like another Mission Impossible. I couldn't, I couldn't I couldn't tell you which one was which, to be honest. That was a long time ago. But I did, I will say, one film I did enjoy that a lot of people don't like, with Tom Cruise in, is uh, Steven Spielberg's War of the Worlds. I thought, I enjoyed that film, and I thought he was, like, okay in it um that's one thing that was one film i enjoyed that tom cruise did that a lot of people i remember saying it was like you know a bit crap but i don't know i like that film
1: well i don't know that's fair i i don't think it's awful i think it's just very emblematic of the mid-2000s where they wanted to make a certain type of film and the disaster films were starting to be big again and it was that weird CG where it was like, well, we've got CG now, so let's just blow stuff up. And eh,
2: it doesn't yeah, do Yeah, that's it. true. It's not one of my favourites, don't get me wrong. I don't I put that on record. Um, <laughs> but yeah, like... But I said, it. yeah. Again, yeah, Tom Cruise and Tom Hanks, I think it's more like what they represent in terms of like Hollywood and... So just the, the general sort of sometimes like beige-ness, I feel like you can sometimes get out of Hollywood.
1: It's just, you want to see something exciting. I guess that's why A24 and... Neon are such exciting distributors, because yeah, they bring something new to the table, and I know A24 gets memed on by a ton of people, because they're like, well, it's just A24 nerds actually all like the same type of film and it's not that special, but I know, at least something like Lady Bird is way more creative than Mission Impossible what, 7? <laughs>
2: oh, yeah. That's the thing, like, Again, I talked about Trainspotting, and when they brought out the sequel, I was like, "I don't like this sort of how. How can we have to like ride this horse again? Like, starve the creativity out of this single concept that we had? Do we have to keep making sequels? Obviously, Trainspotting Two is an exception, but Mission Impossible, like like you say, like the endless sequels, like just you know, we need new ideas, please. And last, like I like Lady Bird. I watched that semi recently as well. Um, A twenty four. Did they do Moonlight as well?
1: Yeah, they distributed Moonlight. Yeah, that's a yeah there. Yeah,
2: I've I've heard of that studio. Um,
1: Yeah, no, it's pretty exciting. That's
2: my that's my my Hollywood beef. That's my take, my hot take on those two guys.
1: Well. That's totally justifiable beef. I mean, you've you've definitely given the right reasons, or at least adequate reasons, (laughs) for your dislike. This track uh,
2: Tom Cruise, Tom Hanks. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) A
1: Tale of Two Very Hated Toms. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But but films that don't innovate are the new Jurassic Park films, and I, I say that because you say that you enjoy the original. Jurassic Park yeah. uh, from your childhood. So, explain why it's meaningful to your childhood.
2: Again, yeah, Jurassic Park is a, another, yeah, a good Steven Spielberg film. I and mean, like you said, talking about CGI before, like the dinosaurs in that are just so fantastic, even though they're not, you know, digitally animated, I believe. Um, yeah, I don't know, I've watched that a lot when I was younger. My mum told me that I watched it a lot when I was younger. I just, I love Jeff Goldblum. I love, uh, is it Laura Dern's in it?
1: Yeah, she's in it.
2: Yeah. yeah um the velociraptor scene again like filled me with fear and yeah it's, i think it's probably one of my favorite if not my favorite steven spielberg film again it's one of those ones i haven't watched in a while but when i was younger as well it doesn't help that before i saw that i was like a dinosaur freak as most like you know a lot of young children are i was obsessed with these things i used to watch like um dinosaur documentaries and like oh people like here. nigel marvin if you've heard of him He's like so a guy cool. who knows a lot about dinosaurs, and I love that stuff. So if Jurassic Park was like just seen that like cinematically and as a film, I think I just became obsessed with it, and I still love it.
1: It holds like, up. I must have recently I... watched it in the last two, three years. And although the story is just so famous that you really know what's coming around every corner, yeah. it holds up. It just holds up visually. And the fact that the art design for it was very, very... Um, specific I guess I mean they, they really designed the park The way the park looks With s- such a high level Of consistency that It all feels Real almost mm. It really is such a Brilliantly made Film even from its time It just doesn't show its age
0: I think yeah, like what, sorry, sorry. I think what it is a testament to is it, is it when you look at it in comparison to the um, two sequels, which the so the most recent sequels are Jurassic World and Jurassic World: Fallen Kingdom? Is it it sort of reinforces that idea of that to be able to create something like that, you have to do a degree of world building, but you don't have to create a world that's that big. Because I think the because that's the thing I didn't I didn't like about the specifically Jurassic World. Is that although they completely flash out the park in terms of like doing that massive like sweeping shots of how amazing it looks as a real life theme park now, that actually that's not that impressive because it is just it's that element of sort of unrealness because you, the thing that is the the thing that is I think the thing that works about Jurassic Park the first one is that. It obviously requires a, obviously like as with any film like that it requires a level of suspension of disbelief. But you don't really need to suspend your disbelief that far because it's so well done. That it's it's so low key that it does look kind of real. Well, it does look it looks perfectly real, especially the, the sort of T Rex and stuff. I know it's sort of held up as the sort of a fantastic example of how to sort of blend like practical effects and CGI to create the best looking, most realistic looking dinosaur ever. It's fantastic and it's, it definitely does hold up today. The thing is that yeah. it is done in such a way that it it builds just enough of the world to make it convincing, but doesn't overdo it to the point where you sort of have like sort of suspension of disbelief fatigue, as it were. And I think that's the thing that I like. I do. I think that, uh, admittedly, Jurassic World does look great. It does look like a good yeah. film. But you expect but- that. Yeah, it it doesn't, but it, it doesn't innovate. That's the thing is that it 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 just isn't that sort of. And I know some of it is it is nostalgic and it works on some level, but I think it isn't is it's not as inno, inno, innovative as the first one was. And I think that's what makes the original Jurassic Park so good. Is even though I only saw it for the first time when I was probably fifteen, so I was that was so it's only what seven years ago or ever. It still felt innovative to me, even though I was watching it over 20 years after it originally came back. Out, out, came out.
1: Yeah, well, I think, uh, to put it into words, why I feel the original is better than the remake is partially due to why the guys over at Corridor Digital explain why the CG works so well in the original. So they say that CG in the original works because of how consistent the lighting is. And the reason they made sure that setting the scene at night meant that it was easier to hide imperfections in the texture of the dinosaur and all that. Right. But I think that translates into the story. If you think about the most dangerous situation you would find yourself in front of a dinosaur in, it would be at night, in the rain, where... Oh yeah it has some sort of sensory deprivation, but not enough for you to completely escape. And, yeah, it just becomes this whole other scary world. Whereas in the new films, I think the fact that it shows you how big the park is and the fact that it's all set in just broad daylight and open spaces, you kind of just don't feel as threatened by the dinosaurs, which I guess is why the Velociraptor scene works in the original. Because yeah. you're stuck in a kitchen with two dinosaurs that is just terrifying
2: that is yeah like the the, the the sort of closeness of it all and the tension and you can like like your heart you, you like you you sit still and you watch that and the, the, the tension he creates is fantastic and again, I agree with like that whole think about like when they did it originally and they created the park and the world that they lived in, it was charming because it was in the nineties so if it looks fantastic now when they make it with like c g i and stuff and chris Pratt like it's not gonna, it's not gonna wow me in the same way. Like I think the only bit I went to see it with my mum, Jurassic World, and the only bit I got really like excited at was when they brought back T Rex, and I was like, yes, get in there, like come on, it's an OG character. Like T Rex was fantastic. It's like couldn't up memories, but again, yeah, it doesn't have that same, same innovation, that same sense of space. I love the way it, films can create space, like a geographic space. I think that's why I like Moonrise Kingdom as well, because it's set on that island. Um, and I, I know I haven't mentioned this before, but I know Tobias has got maybe a bit of beef with this film, but Coraline, I love Coraline and the way it's all set in the house and the grounds <laughs> and the bit with the cat. I, I like it when filmmakers create like a certain like geographic space and the, the plot exists and the tensions exist within this space. Allow like it, me, makes, it makes you more invested in it.
1: Allow me to defend myself. It's not that I don't like Coraline. I just think it's just creepy. And it's just yeah, that level of creepiness that's true, that's true. that makes me go, nah, nah. I, I, no more, no more. But it does, that's what it does brilliantly. Yeah, it's, it's the sense of space. That really is what I enjoy about films too. The fact that you can familiarise yourself with the space to the point where you could close your eyes and probably go, I'd be able to walk that house or complex or flat or room because I it's just so well mapped out in a film which is one of my main gripes with modern action films and specifically um, specifically superhero films where the original Iron Man I really enjoyed because you actually get a feel for Tony Stark's house and his and his garage downstairs and you kind of understand where everything is Mm -hmm. but in the newer films the event like the Avengers Tower I don't know if it's Stark Tower or whatever You know what it looks like from the outside. It's like a shark fin with an A on it and the helipad. Mm. But you can't really map the inside because it's just shown in such a generic way and the cameras use that very specific pan across the actor's faces while they're talking and cut back, back and forward, back and forward to them talking to the point where you just don't really appreciate where they're standing. Because they are standing on a green screen, but... Yeah, It's just, yeah, that sense of space is so important to making a film feel real. Which I I think, think, to bring it full circle, sorry, is why Twin Peaks works. You kind of map out the town of
0: uh, Twin Peaks eventually, right?
2: Yeah, definitely.
0: I I think, yeah, I think you're absolutely right with that. I think the kind of ultimate testament to that, and sort of the opposite of what we've been talking about, is the way, quite famously, that um, Stanley Kubrick used space in The Shining because the Overlook Hotel doesn't make sense, it couldn't exist. It's, deliberate, it's deliberately filmed in such a way that the corridors lead to different places each time, therefore it's it's like a, um, it's almost like a a, um, what are those steps called? Those um, Yeah, I like know exactly what you putting mean. You off. Sorry?
2: It's like meant to, like, the film and the, the layout of the hotel is meant to sort of like, it's, it's The Shining is a film I enjoy as well, and like I think the layout was meant to deliberately, um, like, be indicative of like Jack's insanity. Yeah, yeah the it, film
1: becomes more sprawling and more complicated in the twists and turns. The crazier Jack gets, yeah.
0: Yes, it's like it's kind of set up like um, Penrose steps in the sense that like it's the building itself couldn't possibly exist in the real world because it's designed in such a way that if you tried to actually watch the film and map it out it would contradict itself so you couldn't actually draw a plan of the Overlook Hotel and I think that is basically the ultimate testament to how important space is in a film sort of that world building because it works both ways in the sense that you can create a film that sort of feels, sort of the feeling of um, sort of one of the, sort of, I assume that what we're talking about between Moonrise Kingdom is because it's so enclosed, it sort of does feel like that kind of like feel-good kind of film and then at the other end of the spectrum you have something that couldn't physically exist so it sort of subconsciously sort of puts you on edge because you're effectively watching something that is on it's of that sort of sense of unrealness is from architecture and a similar thing can be said for um parasite i think the, the architecture in parasite is a fantastic sort of um it is obviously very metaphorical in the sense of um, sort of the class thing of above and below, but also just the way the house looks. And there's a fantastic video about sort of talking about the way that every single scene in the house is filmed in such in such a way that there's always like a dividing line between the rich family and the poor family. And it's just, yeah, I think space is one of the things that's probably quite un- overlooked, sorry, or sort of underrepresented in, in sort of how it sort of subconsciously sets a mood in If that makes sense?
1: I mean, I'll go ahead and say that... Sorry, George, but let me just... Quick point. I'll go ahead and say that... I think that if you don't have proper space, your film falls apart. I think space is even more important than building characters sometimes.
2: Mm. I think, yeah... It's a test... Sorry. um, It's just testament, again, to, like... I feel like film... like, Like, you talked about music and the way that can create emotion and characterization like again it's just testament to like a a passion project and like a filmmaker properly understanding all aspects of the form of cinema and how to take best advantage of them like it's not even in Moonrise Kingdom again is one of the reasons with the space it's not even like this it's like the way you can almost like visualize the communities and the people that live there you sort of get a sense of this strange funny little island community um, and this little this little caper between these two kids who go missing, and like you're you're there like that's just testament to someone who's really really thought about how I can make a film the best it can possibly be. And Coraline again, my favourite bit probably of that film is the cat that like transcends the two dimensions, the two like the the world and the other world, and like and the way it's profoundly creepy when the cat leads Coraline out of the world and it just ends and it's like she's trapped this is her, This is she's in this dimension she's in this strange place um, yeah I think that's, that's again like you said it's just so bloody creepy but like I kind of love it and Space does that for, for that film and other films
0: and I think on the uh, note of Space or perhaps time I think uh, it's probably about time to wrap up the podcast now that was a that was, a, that, was a, that was a bad one. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much for coming on, George. Yeah, just before we finish, is there anything you would like to plug? Just anything you've been working on or projects upcoming? Um,
2: well, I've been like pitching a lot recently, but I'm thinking of setting up a blog soon. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't know what it's going to be called yet, but follow <laughs> me on Twitter. I'm uh, at George Walk E with three E's at the end, if you uh, enjoyed it
0: you can find me on twitter at josh sandy and on instagram and letterboxd at josh w sandy and
1: all my social media is uh tobias sore and i did tease i am working on a youtube channel and i, I swear it, it is coming this is this is just beyond parody at <laughs> oh, this yeah. point I'm <laughs> excited.
0: Uh, thank you very much for listening and we'll be back next week goodbye bye see you all soon